if you haven't done it yet, why don't you take this opportunity to silence your cell phones. Two weeks we've been following Abram on his journey of faith, and already in those two weeks we have seen quite a tumultuous journey. We've seen faith that was faltering, we've seen Abram journey down into Egypt in search of food, and then motivated by fear rather than his faith, Abram tells the Egyptians that his wife is actually his sister, and then he convinces Sarah to share in that lie. And then during, during those exploits in Egypt, Abram is faltering, Sarai seems to be lost to another man. God is silent, and God remains silent until Abram returns to the promised land, where God finally does speak again to Abram and reaffirms his promises to him. But how agonizing it must have been for Abram in Egypt that God was silent. Well, today we diverge from Abram's journey We're going to get into a little Christmas series, which I've entitled, The Weary World Rejoices, a phrase that perhaps is familiar to you. Maybe it doesn't seem like the most Christmassy thing to talk about, but no matter, because I think all of us here knows what it is to feel weary, to have our hearts wearied, beaten down, discouraged, depressed. And certainly, we live in a weary world. But even in the midst of these very real emotions, we can still lift our voices. We can praise God. The darkness can be broken by the light. So yeah, considering depression, weariness of heart during Christmas, might not seem Christmassy, but I assure you, it most certainly is. For in the darkest of nights, isn't that when Christ becomes the bright and morning star? The light of the world, meaning a dark world, and in the darkest of, or in the angels declare that dark night to some of the most downtrodden and oppressed people, the birth of Jesus. Good news of great joy that breaks the night, that breaks the silence. But before we come wholly into that good news of great joy that is Jesus, we're going to spend a little bit of time this morning considering the darkness that nearly every one of us has known or will know in our lives. Perhaps there are some even today in this room right now that know this darkness, that feel it. Today we consider our weary hearts, the darkness of the soul, and to do this we're going to turn to Psalm 88. And as you're turning to Psalm 88, I'd like to invite Andrew Avella to come on up here. He's going to read this psalm for us this morning. As he reads this, as we study this, we're going to see that dark nights can still be holy nights. There is a way of holy suffering. So let's listen to Psalm 88. O Lord, God of my salvation, I cry out day and night before you. Let my prayer come before you. Incline your ear to my cry. 
For my soul is full of troubles, and my life draws near to Sheol. I am counted among those who go down to the pit. I am a man who has no strength, like one set loose among the dead, like the slain that lie in the grave, like those whom you remember no more, for they are cut off from your hand. You have put me in the depths of the pit, in the regions dark and deep. Your wrath lies heavy upon me, and you overwhelm, overwhelm me with all your waves. Selah. You have caused my companions to shun me. You have made me a horror to them. I am shut in so that I cannot escape. My eye grows dim through sorrow. Every day I call upon you, O Lord. I spread out my hands to you. Do you work wonders for the dead? Do the departed rise up to praise you? Selah. Is your steadfast love declared in the grave or your faithfulness in Abaddon? Are your wonders known in the darkness or your righteousness in the land of forgetfulness? But I, O Lord, cry to you. In the morning my prayer comes before you. O Lord, why do you cast my soul away? Why do you hide your face from me? Afflicted and close to death from my youth up, I suffer your terrors. I am helpless. Your wrath has swept over me. Your dreadful assaults destroy me. They surround me like a flood all day long. They close in on me together. You have caused my beloved and my friend to shun me. My companions have become darkness. Let's pray. Father, this is certainly a dark passage, but it is your word. So help us to hear it. And I pray that where there is darkness, the light would dawn. And that every eye in this room, in the hearing of my voice, would be fixed wholly on you. You are the God of our salvation. You are the God in which we draw hope, who sustains our every need and brings to us joy in a dark and dreary land. And we thank you that the most ultimate expression of this is that you entered our darkness to save us from it. And we praise you in Christ's name. Amen. So for as long as the church has existed, the Psalms have been beloved. Christians have loved the Psalms through the ages because in this book of Psalms, we find expression to an array of human emotions, all of our deepest emotions, from joy to indignation and worshipfulness, fear, awe, guilt, yearning, hopefulness, and more. But among all of the Psalms, there is not one that is like Psalm 88. It is the bleakest, most mournful of the Psalms. Psalm 88 contains no clear redeeming moment. 
No ending on a high note, no rescuing word from the Lord, no obvious hope. The psalm just ends and it leaves you solidly in the darkness and in the silence. Psalm 88 is a psalm for sufferers. It's a psalm for those who feel far from God and ache at the distance and the silence. And I know that there are many here that share the experience that is expressed in Psalm 88. If you don't share this experience today, you likely have in the past, and if not even in the past, then that means it's in front of you. Even Jesus felt these kinds of emotions, this troubled heart that's being expressed here. In Luke chapter 11, we read, when Jesus saw Lazarus' sister, Mary, weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. Jesus wept. And so we know it to be true. Scripture confirms us. Christian, scripture confirms it. Christians will suffer. Christians do suffer. And sometimes our sufferings, our troubles, are stubborn and abiding. They linger. They last. Nothing seems to get rid of them. And this is not anomalous. This is part, this is part of the Christian life for some more than others. And only false teachers or, or the naive are going to claim that Christians should never be troubled or sorrowful or depressed because if a troubled heart afflicted Jesus, then how would we be exempt? And so perhaps it's your chronic pain or the loss of someone that you love, the realization that you're never going to get in this life that thing that you so desperately want. Perhaps it's the pain of people's scorn, the isolating sorrow of loneliness, Maybe it's the plundering of time and how that clock takes everything. Maybe the hiddenness of God. Perhaps the darkness is coming from another place. And despite our prayers and despite our faith and despite the things that we do, the afflictions beat against us relentlessly like stormy waves that just take troubles that wear us down and weary our hearts. But even though it is dark, Psalm 88 is here as a comfort. Amazingly. And may it be a comfort to you this morning. And it is a good thing, isn't it, that Scripture isn't afraid of these dark places? We know that that God has given us this passage, He isn't silent. He's spoken to us. Even Heman the Ezraite, even though he penned it, this psalm comes from the mouth of God. Because all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So think about that. For our darkest moments, that most terrifying of nights, God gives us Psalm 88 to teach us and convict us and correct us, 
to train us in righteousness, to make us complete, to equip us for every good work. Psalm 88. He intends to work out all of these glories in our darkness. And so we need to pay attention to this very unique psalm. Because even in the midst of the darkness, when there seems to be no sign of redemption, there are these sparks of divine glory that we can see. Look at verse 1 again. O Lord, God of my salvation, I cry out day and night before you. So like I said, Heman the Ezraite, Ezraite wrote this psalm. And he is a righteous man. There's a lot of similarities between him and Job. He's faithful. We're reading his prayer in Psalm 88. And in his prayer, he immediately acknowledges that salvation is found in God. In, in God alone. In his darkness, in the midst of his troubles, which we will learn about, there is nowhere else for him to turn to. No one else for him to look to. His only recourse is to cry out to the God of his salvation. And he cries out. He cries out. Hear the urgency and the passion and the, the longing of a soul with that phrase. Hammon says he's been crying out day and night. And the implication there is that day and night, God has been silent. Day after day and night after night, God remains silent and he is not answering and he is not speaking. Verse 2 says, Let my prayer come before you. Incline your ear to my cry. So here Heman is saying, God's salvation can only come from you. Where else have I to go? Hear my prayer. Help me. But see the glory in that? Even though God has remained silent, Heman, and he is still not found help, still he prays, still he persists, and he hopes, he hopes beyond hope that God will bring him his salvation, the salvation he so yearns for when all else would despair. Heman hopes in the Lord. And in the next verses, we begin to see what, what really does afflict his soul so terribly. Look at verse 3. For my soul is full of troubles, and my life draws near to Sheol. I am counted among those who go down to the pit. I am a man who has no strength, like one set loose among the dead, like the slain that lie in the grave, like those whom you remember no more, for they are cut off from your hand. You have put me in the depths of the pit, in the regions dark and deep. Your wrath lies heavy upon me, and you overwhelm me with all your waves." You have caused my companions to shun me. You have made me a horror to them. I am shut in so that I cannot escape. My eye grows dim through sorrow. Every day I call upon you, O Lord. I spread out my hands to you. Yeah. Haman's soul is troubled. As it says at the beginning of verse 3. Taking up Haman's voice, Charles Spurgeon writes, I am satiated and nauseated with troubles. Like a pot full to the brim with vinegar, my heart is filled with adversity until it can hold it no more. 
He, Haman, had his house and his hands full of sorrow, but even worse, he had his heart full of it. Trouble in the soul is the soul of trouble. A little soul trouble is painful, but what must it be like to be full? And how much worse is it to have your prayers return empty when your soul remains full of grief? It seems that Haman's afflictions were many, coming at him from many different directions. Verses 4 through 7 indicate that he could be troubled by an illness or perhaps it was the afflictions of age. Verse 8, it's clear that for whatever reason his friends have abandoned him. And despite Haman's overwhelming flood of grief, though he feels God is not listening to him, notice how he attributes all of these sufferings to the hand of God. Verse 6, you have put me in the depths of the pit. Verse 7, your wrath lies heavy upon me. 7 again, you overwhelm me with all your waves. Verse 8, you have caused my companions to shun me. Verse 8 again, you have made me a horror to them. You, God, you did this. He knows who is responsible for his suffering. He knows, just as Job knew, that God gives and God takes away. And that language is challenging for us. Because when it comes to our suffering and our pain, many modern people want to get God off the hook. They don't want him to be responsible for my agony, for your agony. But the psalmist doesn't even consider that. That God would not be in control. So whether pleasure or pain, God is sovereign. He created the day and the night. And maybe you heard somebody say, God had nothing to do with this, whatever that trouble is. If God loves you, if God is love, and he doesn't cause suffering. But even though it fills his soul with trouble, Hammond understands that he who has authority over heaven and earth also has authority over his own suffering. And look at verses 10 and 12. 10 through 12. Do you work wonders for the dead? Do the departed rise up to praise you? Is your steadfast love declared in the grave or your faithfulness in Abaddon? Are your wonders known in the darkness or your righteousness in the land of forgetfulness? In these verses, Heman is asking a series of three questions. And in these three questions, I see two thoughts or two emotions that are swirling around in his weary heart. First, he feels dead. He feels like the life has been taken from him. This is depression on the deepest level. A sorrow, a coldness where you hardly feel like you are alive. Your heart is beating, but you are unfeeling and you are numb. And you begin to ask the question, perhaps, what is the point of any of this? And though Heman is expressing this crippling feeling, he doesn't despise his own life. He doesn't wallow in self-pity. He doesn't cry out, woe is me. No, he remembers 
what gives his life meaning. He remembers what is so important. He remembers his God, and he cries out to his God. And this brings us into the second thought or emotion that that Heman is expressing through these three questions. If he, Heman, is dead, if his heart is so overcome by sorrow and trouble that he is entirely numb, then how can he bring glory to God? How can he worship? And I'm reminded of the Lord's Prayer. You know, the reason that we pray, give us this day our daily bread, so that we're alive. And so with that life, we can use our lives to hallow the name of God and to advance his kingdom, to do his will. And so likewise, Heman the Ezraite is crying out to God, how can I despair to the point of death and be able to praise your name? Just as God has given him this despair and he attributes it to the hand of God Now he wants God to remove it. Take this from me. May this cup pass from me. Restore the joy of my salvation. That I might be able to more fully, more wholeheartedly proclaim the wonders of the Lord. Or another way to put this is in question form. If I am dead, how can I live for you? Brought tissues today. This is holy depression. Pure, righteous, awesome, somehow depression. A depression that has not been lost to self focus and self pity. A depression that refuses to give in to the temptations the manifold temptations of selfishness, and instead chooses to lift the eyes to the God of my salvation. The God who gives and takes away. The God who brings the dead to life. And it is never wrong to be overcome with sorrow. What is wrong, no matter what the emotion, is to forget God while you focus on yourself. Which Heman does not do. Verse 13, but I, O Lord, cry to you. In the morning, my prayer comes before you. O Lord, why do you cast my soul away? Why do you hide your face from me? Afflicted and close to death from my youth up, I suffer your terrors. I am helpless. Your wrath has swept over me. Your dreadful assaults destroy me. They surround me like a flood all day long. They close in on me together. You have caused my beloved and my friend to shun me. My companions have become darkness. Silence. Again, we see possible indication in verse 15 that Heman may have suffered from a chronic illness. In verse 18, we realize that not only has, have his friends abandoned him, but his beloved has left him. The love of his life. And once more, Hammond attributes it all to God. Verse 16, your wrath, your wrath has swept over me. Your dreadful assaults destroy me. 
Verse 18, you have caused my beloved and my friends to shun me. You did it, God. Circling back to the original cries of, of his prayer, we see him asking two more questions. You see both in verse 14. Why do you cast my soul away? Why do you hide your face from me? Have you ever asked these questions of God? In your moment of darkness? These two questions, they, it's effectively the same thing as saying, why God am I still waiting for your help? And why are you doing this? First question of verse 14, why do you cast my soul away or, or why am I still waiting for help? Just as in verse 1, this points to God, the only one who can save, the only one who can help, the only one that can revive and return joy of the soul. The second question of verse 14 is stunning to me. Why do you hide your face from me? Or, or why are you doing this? Think about this. God, uh, Heman is saying, why God? Instead of saying, why me? He doesn't go there. Why me? He says, why God? In the midst of his horrific suffering, Job was told to curse God and die. He's told to do this by his wife. And as Heman's soul is swallowed by troubles, he too could have cursed God and died. And even if his words are filled with this visceral desperation and sorrow, he does not seek to take things into his own hands. He's not looking to control the situation. He's not looking at himself. Rather, he's choosing to wait on the Lord. And so with the two questions, Heman is effectively saying, even though I don't understand it, even though I am suffering deeply, I will wait for the goodness of your salvation. And once more, this suffering psalmist has lifted his eyes off of himself and firmly fixes his gaze upon the God who is sovereign, the only God who can save. And then with verse 18, the psalm ends. And Heman receives no answer, and he gets no relief. And the abruptness of its ending indicates that God, just as God was silent before, as Heman prayed day after day, night after night, so God remains silent afterwards. And we have no idea if his troubles are ever resolved in this life. Psalm 88 forces us to confront the stark reality that in this life, happily ever after is the thing of fairy tales. 
not everybody gets a happy ending. And for some people, even as faithful and righteous as Heman, their life is full of trouble and their hearts are weary and heavy laden. And maybe God will never take that away from you in this life. Now maybe I just described your life. Maybe I just described you. Or a moment of a season in your life. So I want to direct your attention to three glories that we see in this very dark passage. And since it is unlikely that you are a better person than Heman, then I want to direct your attention too to these three glories. First, Every verse, every line of Heman's prayer is saturated in hope of the Lord. He, his hope is in the Lord, even if his heart is swallowed by troubles and God is hidden from his sight. Still he cries out to God, day and night, desperate for the Lord's salvation. He wants God. He knows that if God brought him these troubles... And surely he can rescue him from them. If God has brought the pain, then surely he can remove it. Is that not far better than if these troubles came from somewhere else? Because if they did, then what could God do to alleviate them? No, he brought them. And he can take them. And so he hopes in the Lord, in the deepest darkness of his soul. Hemant does not sin. He does not succumb to self-pity. He gives his whole self to seeking the Lord. And you can see him there sprawled out in the floor in the middle of the night with his hands wide open, crying out to the God of his salvation. As I said earlier, this is holy suffering. And is not holy suffering a glory in the darkness? It is. There is glory in holy suffering. The second glory in the dark is to consider the incredible paradox that is Psalm 88. Heman is desperate to hear the voice of God. He, he wants to hear from God. Longing to hear his voice. But as we read Psalm 88, has it not itself been breathed out by God? Well, likely without realizing it, Heman is praying the voice of God. He doesn't hear God how he's expecting, but through his cries, millennia later, Sufferers are helped by reading Psalm 88. We hear the voice of God in Heman. And I wonder if Heman knew that while he was praying, if his, if his soul might have been revived a little bit. In whatever day that knowledge is entirely revealed to him, I imagine his troubled heart is going to burst with joy that his troubles have helped countless sufferers. Isaiah 55, 8 and 9, God said, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, 
Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. And Romans 8, 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. Now, I know that these verses are thrown around in times of suffering rather unhelpfully. Let that not diminish the power of them. And let us take a lesson in the sovereignty of God from Heman's holy suffering that we trust him even if we don't understand it. Even if, he's, if he is silent, all the while our heart is being swallowed up by trouble, weariness, we trust in the God of our salvation because he has a plan to satisfy these weary hearts. He has a plan to satisfy these weary hearts that will make all of our afflictions and all the weights of our troubles feel suddenly light and momentary. Perhaps in his plan, there is a weight of glory that will rest on your soul and swallow every trouble and wipe away every mournful tear. The third glory in the darkness that is Psalm 88, it points to the Son of God who shares in our sufferings. I already hinted at it when I said Jesus wept at Lazarus' death. Every single suffering in Psalm 88 is a suffering that the Son of God enters into. When his friends ran away in fear, he knew what it was to be abandoned. When he was put on trial, he knew what it was to be scorned and alone. And as the whip tore at his back and the nails were driven through his body, he knew terrible physical pain. And in this hurricane of wrath, as God the Father looks on his Son in crucified form and he sees sin, Jesus knew what it was to be condemned and forsaken by his most beloved Father. In that moment, In that moment when the earth shook and Jesus cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus knew a pain we will never understand. And all our life's worth of pain will never come close to. The entire and terrible landscape of human suffering was folded into that singular moment on the cross. Jesus knew what it was to be troubled. Knowing that he was about to face immeasurable suffering, he knew what it was to be troubled. Matthew 26, hours before the cross, we read, And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, Jesus began to be sorrowful and troubled. And then he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. Going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Brothers and sisters, when night comes upon you, and it will, 
a trouble and the troubles of Psalm 88 begin to creep into your soul and your heart is burdened and weary, know that all of those things are coming from God. And he's giving you that night. And he walks you into the valley of the shadow of death. And while you're there, in that darkness, God is granting to you the tiniest taste of the suffering of your Savior. He is letting you, He is giving you a minuscule affliction that Jesus suffered more fully and more completely on your behalf. It is a glory in the dark, is it not, to better understand how great your Savior suffered? And though Psalm 88 ends on this dark note, with no resolution, with silence, we're not going to do that. Remember Hemant's questions from verses 10 and 11? Do you work wonders for the dead? Do the departed rise up to praise you? Is your steadfast love declared in the grave or your faithfulness in Abaddon? The answers are yes. Christ is risen. He has broken the night and he has defeated death. Christ is risen. And yes, God works wonders for the dead. And yes, they rise up to praise him. And yes, his steadfast love overcomes the grave and his faithfulness destroys Abaddon forever. And our darkness is gone. O holy night, O night divine, Christ is shining brightly. And so this Christmas, may your weary heart and the weary heart of many be revived that Jesus has entered our darkness. And like the rising sun, may he fill your heart and this world with soul-satisfying light. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you. And even those words right there seem small. But we thank you for the gift of your Son. That you've broken into our darkness. And you brought light. Giving us the light of the world. Jesus Christ, your Son, our Savior, our Lord, who has rescued us who revives us, who restores us and redeems us and reconciles us unto you. What glories, what glories. We can see these even in the darkest night. So Lord, I lift up every sufferer here this morning. It feels like they're walking in the darkness. They feel dead. God, revive their hearts. Restore to them the joy of their salvation. You have not taken your spirit from them. 
And may they find great peace and joy and hope and faith drawn from your word, from your promises. You are not silent. Help all of us to love one another better. As you have loved us, help us to love one another. We thank you for your word. We thank you that you don't shy away from our darkest places. We praise you in Christ's name. Amen.